Well, good morning and welcome to the services this morning. It is such a blessing to see everyone out this morning, and we want to welcome you to La Prada Drive Church of Christ. If you're visiting with us here for the first time, we especially want to welcome you as well and pray that you would stick around after services and let us introduce ourselves to you. I want to start this morning by thanking each and every single one of you for the continued prayers on behalf of mom and, and dad and all of us throughout that journey and that battle with cancer that she just recently went through. There have been a lot of emotions, a lot of heartache, but also a lot of joy that has come throughout that trial. And I believe trials are, are used to strengthen our faith, but sometimes we don't have the right response to them. And throughout the last few months, I've dealt with emotions of anxiety and emotions of fear and emotions of doubt at a rate higher than I ever have. And it's affected and, and cascaded throughout every piece of my life, including my Christian walk. And during this trial, we also were able to kickstart a, a youth study at the church that we've been involved with. And it's been a great blessing in the lives of myself and Bailey, and I, I think I can speak to the lives of everyone that's been involved. And I pray that it's been a blessing for the youth as well. And throughout these, these youth studies, we've been journeying through the book of Romans, learning the interactions of grace and faith and works, learning Paul's declaration of the gospel to those who are in Rome. And I've spent time diving into Romans before, but something hit me a little differently this time in the context of mom's battle with cancer that I want to talk to you a little bit about this morning. The Roman epistle, if you remember, was written to the church or to the Christians that were there at Rome from the Apostle Paul. And Romans can, can kind of be an intimidating book when you look at its entirety and the thematic principles that it attacks and the way in which Romans is outlined. But in general, the way in which we look at Romans is within the confines of questions from the opposition. In other words, Paul, in an attempt to clear things up, writes questions guided by the Holy Spirit that the opposition or someone who is opposing the message of Jesus or the message of Christ may have had. And the general format Romans has is Paul poses a question answers the question and then generally provides extensive proof as to why that answer is what it is. And you can ask some of the young people here this morning, sometimes that proof can get a little repetitive, a little overbearing for the sake of clarity on Paul's behalf. Think of questions such as what advantage then hath the Jew? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? I say then, has God cast away his people? And these are all very famous questions that people are very familiar with. And Paul spends the entirety of the book of Romans giving detailed answers to these questions from the opposition. Sometimes Jews, sometimes Gentiles, depending on what the context is. And every single one of these, he pretty much answers. Except for one. And that's where we want to spend our time this morning. So turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 this morning. And we're going to read the scripture there in Romans chapter 9 before we get started today. But the context of this passage here starts back all the way back in chapter 8. 
Paul, through the Holy Spirit, declares that both Jews and Gentiles shouldn't be separated from the love of God and that God had sent his son to be a propitiation for the sin of mankind that he taught in Romans chapter 3 so that we don't have to live after the flesh as he teaches in Romans chapter 8. And now Gentiles are in the fold. And the question that Paul raises in the verse 15 verses of chapter 9 is what about God's chosen people? What about the Israelites? What about all those laws? What about all the struggle? What about all the captivity? If you were just going to bring Gentiles into the fold anyway, why did we have to go through all that? And the ultimate question is this. Has God forgotten Israel? Christ is here. So is Israel just done away with? Well, pick up with me in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 14 this morning. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, And that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay? Of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in Ossie, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work would the Lord make upon the earth? And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness? Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith. But as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Notice the line of questioning Paul starts to bring out here. Is there unrighteousness with God? God brings Gentiles into the fold that were not his people. Is God an unrighteous God? And Paul answers that and says he will have mercy upon who he will have mercy, and he's going to harden who he will harden. 
And the answer is later given to whom he will have mercy in verse 30 and 32. Mercy to those who have obedient faith and he will harden those who do not. But there is a question that is posed in the middle that we want to take a look at this morning. In verse 19, thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? Why doth he yet find fault? If God is showing mercy to those he has mercy and he's going to harden who he has, who's going to harden, why does he find fault with me? You see, they're taking a similar approach or a similar line of thinking to those who believe in Calvinistic ideology. They believe that humans are hereditarily deprived meaning you are born with sin from Adam, and due to that fact, you can't get to God. So instead, God has to come to you. Unconditionally. Is that mine? It is. Choi, do I need to take this off? Good? Okay. Who is God to judge me at all? Is really the question that they're asking. What gives him that right? That's the question that's being posed here in a nutshell. The question here gets to the very core of who God is, of God's sovereign rule, of God's supreme authority, of God's perfection, of his purpose, of his wrath, and of his justice. Why does God find fault with me? That's the question here, and it's a question we still ask today. Why does God condemn people to hell? And we place the blame on God. Society today is full of people that think along these same lines. And from the Apostle Paul, what you would expect to see here is not actually what we're going to get in Romans chapter 9. What Paul's writing has been so far in Romans is a detailed, theologically driven answer that perfectly encapsulates God's plans. That perfectly shows not only the answer to the question he's raising, but why someone would have been asking that question in the first place. You see, Romans is an English professor's dream. But that's not what we get here. No theological answer, no evidence, no multi-metaphorical constructed rebuttal. Instead, Paul and the Holy Spirit simply respond, Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Why does God find fault with me? Who are you to even ask that question? That's the answer first thing we want to notice this morning comes from verse 20. Look with me there. Paul says, Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? I want you to notice something with me. And I think we often kind of read this verse and and we look at it and we say, well, obviously, you know, I'm I'm not God, right? Obviously, I'm a man. I'm not God. But the words there, O man, and the word God are actually, in the Greek, a lot stronger. And in fact, show a harsher reality to what we often think of when we read this passage. You see, there's a definitive article there in the Greek. Shows a declarative form of the text. In fact, the accurate Greek would read, A man and the God. So it's not just saying, remember that you're not man, or remember that you're not God. Paul is saying you are a man, and he is the God. You are not the man, and he's just some small little God. You are a man, and he is the God. And so what Paul is really saying here is, Who are you, little man, to respond against the true and living God? Because he is God, and you are not. And part of our problem here is not that we don't recognize who God is. It's that we don't recognize who we are. 
You see, we think too much of ourselves, don't we? And what this passage kind of tries to trap us into believing is that I think too much of mankind. I think mankind is elevated above God. That's what the passage kind of looks like it's outlined. That we think mankind is elevated more than it actually is. But that's not really the case, is it? You see, I don't think that high of mankind. But I do think that high of myself. And then we take it a step further. And it's not really an issue for me when God doesn't explain himself to Greg. But it's a felony on all accounts when God doesn't explain himself to me. I think too highly of myself. And I start to believe, and I I believe that I've elevated myself so far above God that I start to rationalize that God owes me an explanation at every step of my life. And not only that, but he owes it to me to explain it to me until I am good and satisfied. So much so that if I don't like his explanation, he better change it until I'm good and satisfied. And brethren, that shows how highly I think of myself. But even more so, it shows how little I think of my God. And that is why Paul cuts straight to the heart of the matter and essentially asks, Oh man, who do you think you are? And this really hit me in the trials with mom over the last few months. I want you to know I'm ashamed. And I'm embarrassed of some of my response during that time. I would go to God not as a submissive servant not as a child of his asking that his will be done asking that no matter what happens his glory be shown but instead went into prayer like a pouting child demanding terms and that shows how highly I thought of myself God was no longer the God of the universe but instead was a God that was going to heal her whether he wanted to or not And that may not have been what came out of my mouth, but understand it was in my heart. The very God that I borrowed breath from to speak those demands I was trying to boss around. That's what I was doing. And I'm reminded of Paul's point here in chapter 9. Who do I even think I am? God is eternal and I am temporal. God is omnipotent and I am weak. God is omnipresent and I am finite. God is holy and you are a dirty rag stained with sin and you dare question God? Who do you think you are? The psalmist writes in Psalm 115 verses 1 through 3, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. For thy mercy and for thy truth's sake, wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Who do you think you are? And oftentimes we look at an answer of this caliber. We look at the text here and we try to apply it. And we say, well, hold on there, Paul. This, this kind of answer is not going to work in modern day society. When I'm studying Romans with someone, I'm not going to say that to them. That's not godly, Paul. It's not Christ-like. I can't look at my friend who asks, why does God have the right to judge and say, who do you think you are to ask that question? That's not a good enough answer. It's not going to satisfy them. Well, number one, for anything to be godly or Christ-like, God would have either had to exhibit that behavior or specifically condone that behavior in the Scripture. So the question is, does God condone that behavior? 
And I think you'll see that he does. The book of Job actually gives us an example of this behavior in Job chapter 38. And just some context on Job. Job is a servant of God. A man of God who's put through some trials. And Satan comes to God and we get this kind of backseat view of God and Satan sitting in the driver's seat and the passenger seat. And we're watching everything unfold through the windshield. And Satan decides he's going to test Job. And he takes everything from Job. And Job has a few friends that then come to meet with him. And they begin a series of very fruitless theological conversations attempting to figure out why this is happening to Job. They throw out the idea of karma, the idea that Job must have sinned, and this is God's response to that sin. But in chapters 32 through 37 in the book, Job begins to lose his faith a little bit, and he starts to question God, wondering why these things are happening, wondering why God has afflicted his servant. And I want you to know this morning what the Holy Spirit could have done. What we might have even expected to see was a perfect explanation from God to Job, explaining to him the conversation that he had with Satan and how that even though Job lost everything, he remained faithful to God and how that God may even use Job to show how trials can strengthen our faith and give him that fourth wall kind of atmosphere to where he understands what's going on. But much like the book of Romans, we get a whole lot more than we bargain for, don't we? Job chapter 38 starting in verse 1 this morning. Job 38, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof? If thou knowest, or who has stretched the line upon it, whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, or who laid the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth, as if it had issued out of the womb, when I made the cloud the garment thereof, and thick darkness a swaddling band for it, and break up for it my decreed place, and set bars and doors, and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, and here shall thy proud waves be stayed. Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days, and caused the day spring to know his place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it? It is turned as clay to the seal, and they stand as a garment. And from the wicked their light is withholden, and the high arms shall be broken. Hast thou entered into the springs of the sea, or hast thou walked in search of the depth? Have the gates of death been opened unto thee, or hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? Hast thou perceived the breadth of the earth? Declare, if thou knowest it all, where is, thy, where is the way where light dwelleth? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof, that thou shouldest take it to the bound thereof, and that thou shouldest know the path to the house thereof? And God continues and continues and continues and continues for three straight chapters, essentially asking Job, who do you even think you are? And that's the book of Job. That's God's response. So is that answer ungodly? Is it unchristian to give that answer? I don't think so. 
And I want you to know if that answer bothers you this morning, you might be thinking too highly of yourself. If that answer doesn't sit right with you, if that answer doesn't satisfy you this morning, be afraid. Because you dare challenge the God of the universe because he is God and you are not. Second thing we want to notice from Paul's response here, picking back up in verse 20. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? You are created, not the creator. You were created by God. You did not create God. He is not a figment of your imagination. You are the creature, not the other way around. So first, he is God, you are not. Secondly, you are not the creator. Keep that in mind next time we go questioning God. That God created me. And if God is the creator, that means first and foremost, we exist for the purpose and fulfillment of the creator's desire. You know what that means? It means I don't exist and humans will never exist to satisfy my own purpose in life. I don't exist for my own pleasure. I don't exist for my own lust. I exist for God. And if I exist for the purpose of the creator, the question is, what's his purpose? His glory and honor. And that's the shortened version. But the reason I exist is so that God may execute his purposes through me and with me, the creation, so that glory is brought to his name, however and whenever he chooses to do so. That means very simply that I owe God submission. I owe God obedience. I owe God worship. And I owe God my love. And I owe God my whole self. Because he gave it to me anyway. I want to read with you Romans chapter 1 there for a moment. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Notice there the statement, they changed the uncorruptible God into a corruptible image. The problem here with the Gentiles is that they seek to serve the creature more than the creator. Yet in chapter 9, Paul tells us the creature is under subjection to the creator. It says those in in chapter 1 who profess themselves to be wise, in our wisdom, we uh, think we're the center of the universe, don't we? That God somehow needs me. That God has to do as I please. That God exists solely for my fulfillment for my pleasures, for my lust. And to that I say, you fool. Your futile, temporary, corruptible, broken, weak, sinful heart approaches a holy God, looks him in the eyes and says, I demand that you answer me. I demand explanations. I demand that you execute my will. You fool. God has created the universe around you. He's executed his will forever and he will continue to execute that will. So what we need to do is not question him, but what we need to do is fall on our knees 
And we need to worship Him in the way He wishes to be worshipped. We need to obey Him in the way in which He calls us to obey. Because I am the creature, He is the Creator. And that relationship demands that I exist for His purpose and His glory, plain and simple. Brethren, if I have questions for God, they shouldn't be questions that elevate us. Instead of demanding an answer, I should be asking God for the strength to understand His will. Or if not, to just trust His will. Instead of questioning how the plan works out, ask how I can be a vessel to show His glory throughout that plan. I want to turn to the book of Daniel this morning. This will be on the screen. Just some context on this. Daniel chapter 4 is essentially where God is telling Nebuchadnezzar that I'm going to take your mind from you. I'm going to take your kingdom from you and I'm going to send you out into the fields and you'll live as a beast. And you're going to eat the grass of the fields and you're going to be like an oxen. And you're going to stay there seven years and then I'll give you your mind back and we'll see what you've learned. God is pointing out in the left field. He's calling his shot. God's telling him through Daniel's dream interpretation, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. You're going to be out there seven years, and then you'll come back and you'll get your mind back. And Nebuchadnezzar endures those seven years. But notice with me Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's response. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 34. And at the end of the days, that, there, that day, days there being the seven years he was in the wilderness, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. That's his mind coming back. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me. And for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me. And my counselors and my Lord sought unto me. And I was established in my kingdom. And excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Preach it, Nebuchadnezzar. Notice, Nebuchadnezzar is king in Babylon. The most powerful man on the face of the earth at this time. God calls his shot, fulfills his promise, very simply looks Nebuchadnezzar in the eyes and says, Who do you think you are? I am the creator. You are the creature. And to remind you of that fact, I'm going to take away your mind. I'm going to take away your ability to think, your ability to reason. And you're going to remember who I am. That you are the creature and I am the creator. Third thing we want to notice this morning is that we are the clay and he is the potter. Verse 21, hath not the potter power over the clay? Of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. And this is an analogy written to those in Rome. And not only is this a perfect illustration, it would have been very familiar to those who were in Rome and the Jews there in Rome. In fact, look with me in Isaiah 29. It says, Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord. And their works are in the dark. And they say, Who seeth us and who knoweth us? Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall thy work say of him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he had no understanding? 
again in Isaiah 64 and verse 8. But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay and thou art potter. And we all are the work of thy hand. Again in Jeremiah 18, then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter? Saith the Lord, Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand. O house of Israel, understand this morning, this is way deeper than just God creating you. This is way beyond the fact that God formed you in the womb, that he fashioned you, that that he molded you in the womb, that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. This goes beyond that. This analogy shows not only did he form you, not only did he mold you, but he is forming, molding you and transforming you even today. Not only did God create you, not only did he breathe into you the breath of life, but you are still breathing because of God. God is the potter and we are the clay. And because we are the clay, God is his potter, or God as the potter, wants us to be shaped and molded into the image of his son. That is his goal. And that should be our goal. To be shaped and molded into the image of Christ, to be Christ-like, Simply what Christian means, Christ-like. So when I ask to be a better Christian husband, a better Christian wife, a better Christian parent, I'm simply asking to be more Christ-like in my role. And in order to accomplish a deeper faith, a deeper understanding of who God is, in order to make us trust Him more, and in order to be more Christ-like, the potter has to mold the clay. Think of what James says in James chapter 1 and verse 2. My brother, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a sea, driven but with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. God allows you to endure things in order to build you up and build your faith and make you more like Christ. Remember, when things aren't going your way, don't be questioning the potter. Don't question the one who already teaches you. He's going to put you through those things or allow you to go through those things so that you can be built up to give you patience. Instead of questioning the potter, let's work on becoming the clay the potter wants us to be. So what does all this tell us? All these contrasts, Paul is set up, I'm man, he's God. He's the creator, I'm the created. I'm the clay, he's the potter. With all these things, what should be my response? What, what can I take away from these things? First of all, your knowledge is limited to what God has rightly chosen to reveal to you. And I'll go one step even further. Your knowledge is as limited to what you can comprehend from what God has already chosen to reveal to you. If you don't think that's true, go pick a random chapter out of the Bible today. Read it. You're going to learn something new you didn't know this morning, further indicating your knowledge is limited to what you can comprehend at this certain time from what God has already chosen to reveal to you. So before we hit our knees angry in prayer, shaking our finger at God, going to Him and telling him, I don't understand your plans and you're wrong for that. No, very simply, you're not going to understand his plans. Isaiah 55 teaches us of this. Isaiah 55 and 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Remember the context of Romans 9 through 11. Has God forgotten Israel now that the Gentiles are in the fold? I want to read you the conclusion of this dissertation over those three chapters from Paul. Romans chapter 11, verse 28. This is Paul's conclusion. He says, As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, through him, and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. And that's Paul's response. Remember the question the opposition was asking. Why does God find fault? Who is God to judge me? When they didn't have all the pieces flowing together. When they didn't have all the knowledge. So understand today, you don't have all the pieces. And you can't put the puzzle together because you are not God. You've got to trust the one who can see all of time and all of eternity. Secondly, this morning... Automatically blaming God isn't always the wisest move. Verses 15 through 17 show us that God has mercy on those who he's going to have mercy and he's going to harden whom he will harden. And so remember the opposition's point is if he is in control, who is he to judge me for what I've done? Who is God to judge me for the sins that I've committed? After all, it's God's fault anyway. That's the point of the question. The blame rests with God. That's their point. It's God's fault. I want to notice a text in Matthew chapter 26. And remember, Matthew 26 shows us the night that Christ would be betrayed. He conducts the Last Supper. He leaves to go to a garden in Gethsemane. And Christ is realizing what he's about to go through. He comes to God in prayer in verse 39. And it reads, And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt couple of things I want to notice from this. Number one, Christ while on earth is both 100% man and 100% God. Meaning he didn't lose his place in the Godhead when he came to earth. He is both man in the sense of the body and the vessel he's walking around in and still 100% deity, the Son of God. And so the same authority that he had in heaven 33 years prior and the same authority that he's had for all eternity, he still has in the garden. Number two, Christ is without sin when he hits his knees in prayer. He will remain without sin, of course, to be the spotless lamb. But notice specifically, right here in the garden, Christ hits his knees and he is perfect. He is without sin. He is not separated from God the Father. The same separation and disconnect that we feel from God at times through our own sin, Jesus does not experience in the garden. When he gets down on his knees, he is connected with the Father in a perfect, harmonious relationship, being his Son, also being sinless and perfect. And Jesus, who is both man in the form of his body and the deity, Son of God, who is perfect and without sin, hits his knees in the garden, falls on his face, 
and says, If it be possible, let this cup pass. Lord, if there be any other way, let me do it. If there's any other way that your plan can be accomplished, can we do it that way? And the answer is no. Jesus doesn't get the answer that he's searching for in prayer, does he? And brethren, I want you to know if anybody in all of history, in all of eternity, is in a position of power enough to be able to even think about speaking to God and questioning his plans, it's Christ, his perfect, holy son, who exhibits the same characteristics, the same traits that he does. If anybody has the authority to go to God in prayer and say, God, you've got to be kidding me. There's got to be another way. You can do anything you please. The whole world is in your control. You can see all of time just as I can. I don't want to be beat. I don't want to be mocked. I don't want to be scorned. And I, I don't want to be crucified. You can save him all the same. If anybody has the right to question God, it's Jesus Christ. But that's not the response we get from Jesus, is it? In fact, Jesus says, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus doesn't blame God for his plan. He doesn't blame God for the plan that's going to be wrath poured out on him. Even though I don't deserve it, even though he doesn't deserve it, even though he didn't earn it, even though he has no sin, even though there may be another way, he's still going to submit to God the Father. What do you think God feels when you and I question him? You are full of sin. Full of lust. We deserve death. We deserve eternal punishment. And God sent his son from you. And that same son submitted to the plan to save you and take all of your punishment. And I come to God in prayer knowing all of that. And I question him. Who do I think I am? And that leads us to the final point of the morning. We need to be asking the right kinds of questions. Look with me in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? Who are the fathers and of whom concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. And what Paul does here is he shows us a brief synopsis of Israel. A brief history of Israel as it pertains to salvation under Christ. He says it pertains to them, the adoption and the laws and the promises and the very Messiah will come through their descendants. Very simply, God has fulfilled his promises to the nation of Israel. Their numbers are more than the sand on the seashore, more than the stars, and that Christ comes to the lineage of Israel. Paul then goes on to the dialogue with the fathers and the patriarchs and of Jacob and of Esau. And shows further that his promises are kept. And he shows that that promise was based on a choice, not by the works of the flesh, but of faith. He then points to Pharaoh, as we read earlier, and shows that Pharaoh would receive God's wrath. And if you remember from Exodus, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And God allows humans to have free will. And because God executes wrath and mercy upon those... And wrath to whom do not have obedient faith. Mercy to those who have obedient faith. It is God's choice to execute his will in that way. And then down in verses 22 through 29, God references the prophets. The prophets of Hosea and Isaiah. And it shows not only as God's promise has been fulfilled to Israel, but also that a remnant should be saved. 
and also that Gentiles are now in the fold. Remember the overarching questions from chapter 9 through 11. Has God, through the mystery of allowing the Gentiles into the fold, forgotten Israel? And Paul shows them that through their history in verses 3 through 5, through the prophets in verses 22 through 29, through the patriarchs in verses 8 through 11, that God has revealed his plan. And his argument is, you should have known. And so when the question arises, why does God still find fault? Paul very simply answers, you should have known. You who know the oracles of God, as Romans chapter 3 teaches us, should have trusted him. So who in the world do you think you are questioning God? God has not forgotten Israel. God, through his perfectly executed plan, has brought full salvation to everyone who obeys the gospel of Christ. So who are you to question his ways? And brethren, when we look on God's plan for salvation and his plan and his purpose in our lives, our question should not be, how could God allow this? How could God do this? Why would God do it that way? We have to realize, number one, I am not God. Number two, I am not the creator. And number three, I am the clay and he is the potter. And we have to understand who we are. We are broken sinners in need of a savior. So who do you think you are this morning? Our question in reality should be, why? Why would God, a God of perfection, a God of holiness, a God of awesome, unfathomable power, look on me, the creation, just a man, a sinful man, a broken man with all the evils and all the sin and all the lust in my heart, why would God look on me and say I'm worth his son? That's the question we should be asking. Why me? Why would God save me? And I want you to know this morning, it's because he loves you. And he wants a relationship with you. We cannot know everything about God, but we do know this. He isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should have eternal life. Are you willing to begin that walk this morning? Or maybe you've realized that you've elevated yourself above God. And by doing that, you've put him in second place. Brethren, we stand ready to pray for you, ready to serve you and bear any burdens you may have. If you would, come forward as we stand and as we sing.